0: Hello, friends. This is Matthew. Thank you so much for listening to this week's sermon from Emanuel Anglican Church in Atlanta, Georgia. If you've been getting sermons from formerly Trinity Eastside Parish, now Emmanuel Anglican, through the uh, ATL Trinity podcast feed, we wanted to let you know we're only going to be posting on that for a couple of weeks. And then the, the sermons from our church will be available through our new podcast. Uh, feed Emmanuel Anglican Church. You can find it by searching anywhere you go and get your podcast. Just search for Emmanuel that's with an I, Emmanuel, Atlanta, and you should be able to find it, or just go on our website, EmanuelATL.org, and you can find the link under teaching. Um, and while you're there, uh, why don't you go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please do leave us a review, um, and that's it. Thanks again for listening. Grace and peace. Hey, welcome to church. Welcome to Emmanuel, everyone. My name is Matthew. I'm the lead pastor here. And what a gift it is to spend Pentecost with you. Um, What a gift it is to spend this morning, this graduation day, with you. Uh, I'm going to read from Acts chapter 2, which is about the first Pentecost Sunday. And then um, we're going to pray. And then we're going to see what God has for us. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit." And they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered, and they were bewildered, because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not these who are speaking all Galileans? How is it then that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, and Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes alike, Cretans and Arabs. In our own language, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing up, with the 11, raised his voice and said, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let it be known and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. And they said, Peter, haven't you ever been to college, though? (laughs) No, he says. This is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. That's the the amplified version of this text. In the last days, he says, it will be as God declares that I will pour out on my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men will see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even upon my slaves, men and women alike. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. I will show portents in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. And then everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord... Shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you, Father, for the gift it is to be your church, to be the continuation of this story, which began on this day, thousands of years ago and thousands of miles from here. That, Lord, what was started there, the spark, the flame that caught that day has continued to burn around the world and into our hearts and into this day. Thank you, God. Lord, let us get a glimpse of your glory today. Help us to see you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I know it is very hot out here. I'm going to try to do two things and do it relatively quickly. First, I do want to talk about what our text is telling us happened on the day of Pentecost. But to get there, we're going to have to back up quite a bit. And then after that, I also want to give you a little bit of a sense of why we're called Emmanuel. And it has to do with this text and this story. And so your Bible begins at the very beginning with this incredible idea, this claim. And it's not that the earth was made in six days. It's that God made the earth, and he made the heavens, and he made the universe so that he could be known. That out of the joy and the laughter and the happiness and the perfection of the Trinity, something creative exploded out of that love, and everything that breathes and lives and grows ever since then has been birthed out of that fellowship, that community. And the reason you exist is so that you can know that God. Every person you've ever met, everything you've ever seen exists for that because God is so perfectly happy and so wonderful that it would be, there would be nothing more loving and good that he could possibly do than to create you just so that you can know him. Now, this is what the Garden of Eden is. Our Bibles begin with this idea of fellowship, of presence. They're with God. And the rabbis have long pointed out that the Garden of Eden is not just some nice little idyllic backyard. It is meant to be a temple. It's a thin space where heaven and earth touch. It's a, it's a tear in the veil between this world and the other. It's a space in which God and humans can have the interaction they were designed for, that you were designed for. That's what a temple is. And the Garden of Eden was that kind of place in which human beings and God could walk and hear one another and talk with one another. But of course, it doesn't get... Uh, We don't go long in our Bible before that is all upset. And by the third chapter, they are being pushed out of the garden. Adam and Eve, or literally in the Hebrew, the man and the mother of the living are pushed out of the garden. And between them and the garden is now a cherubim, an angel with a flaming sword. It's very cool, right from the beginning in the Bible. They say you can't come back into this untarnished, divine, holy temple. You're not allowed back in. The rest of the book of Genesis, God's presence seems somewhat aloof, although he does show up from time to time. But then we get to the book of Exodus, and we hear the story of Moses. And in the third chapter, Moses has a a vision. He sees God in a burning bush. God appears in a bush and begins to speak. And he says to Moses, I am going to send you to Egypt to bring my people out of bondage, out of slavery. And Moses says in chapter 4, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And God says... I will be with you. In other words, like, this isn't about you going and doing something. I'm going to come with you and empower you because I'll be there. And then he says, and this will be a sign that you know it was me. When you get everyone out of Egypt, you're going to come back to this mountain and worship me. And we fast forward to the end of Exodus, and a lot happens between those two points. But they're back on that mountain, and Moses has been receiving for 15 chapters architectural instructions about how to build a tabernacle. And you might think after all the cool stuff that happens in Exodus, I mean, you have Moses and the basket and the Nile and then he's a, you know, a son of Pharaoh and then the burning bush and the 10 plagues and the Red Sea and all this stuff, manna from heaven. And then it's 15 chapters of and this is the color thread you should use and this is what you should carve into the wood and this is what the gold should be made into. Seems kind of tedious, but the whole reason God rescues the slaves is not to just get them out of bondage, but to get them into His presence, because that is what they were made for. And so the tabernacle is that tear where God says, I'm going to come once again and dwell in this place. And the rabbis love to point out that all of the details in the tabernacle are garden details. There's palm trees, there's pomegranates, there's cherubim everywhere. The tabernacle is this rectangular enclosure with sort of tent walls. And then there's a tent in the middle. And inside that tent, there's a smaller room. And inside that room, there's an Ark of the Covenant with two cherubim facing down with their wings touching in the middle. And that's called the mercy seat. And on that place was the locust of the presence that had walked in the Garden of Eden, that presence that you were made to know and experience. But the people of Israel take this for granted In fact, we read not too long after this, they begin to turn to other gods. And by the end of their story in the Old Testament, they're literally dragging idols from other nations and putting them up in the temple alongside with the place where Yahweh is worshiped. They desecrate and defile the place and it's no longer a house of presence. It's now just a a building full of a bunch of shrines and idols and poles and, and whatnot. And because of that, they lose the land, they lose the temple, and worst of all, they lose the presence. In fact, Ezekiel, who's a prophet during the exile, He has a vision in chapter 10 where he says, I saw the cherubim, and they were in the temple. They took wing and flew away, and with them went the glory of God. God left. He's gone. The presence that was meant to live and dwell with people is gone, but Ezekiel has another vision. He says, but there will be a day where a greater temple is rebuilt, a more majestic temple, a living temple, out of which will flow, and listen to this imagery, a river, and along the banks of this river will grow the tree of life. We're back in Eden again. And this tree will grow fruit and leaves that will heal the nations. So he says, there's going to be a time in which presence returns to the earth, and it won't just be the high priest that gets to come into this space anymore, but all the nations will be gathered into this home. All will be able to experience the things that you were made for. Now, if we need to understand Christianity, if if we want to understand Christianity, we have to understand that the entire story leading up to Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit has always been about God getting his people, that's you, back into his presence that they were made for and nothing less than this. And this shouldn't surprise us if we are in touch with ourselves, if we are aware of the deep ache in each one of us for an experience that we can't quite, Fabricate on this earth for a sense of belonging that we've never quite been able to discover in a friendship, no matter how much we weigh it down with expectations and longing, that we've never quite been able to get from another person or from an experience. And every time we have even a moment of a sense of rightness about the world, it passes immediately. And we remember we have to empty the dishwasher again. There's just this sort of ongoing struggle of looking for a thing that's just out of reach. And all of us experience it in one way or another. And we've known it in our bones since we were little kids. And that's because you were made for a different world. You were made for the presence of a different person, a person who can heal that deep ache and longing in you like no other As C.S. Lewis says it in his uh, sermon, The Weight of Glory, apparently our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy, but it is the truest index of our real situation. To be at last summoned inside would be both a glory and an honor beyond all of our merits. And it would also be the healing of that old ache. This is what you and I were made for. And Jesus Christ, when he comes to the earth, when he's standing trial before the religious rulers, there is one piece of evidence that is put forward against this man against the, to, to back up their charge of blasphemy, that Jesus was claiming equality with God. One piece of evidence is put forward, and it's this. They say, this man said, destroy this temple And in three days, I will rebuild it. And he said this about his body. The religious rulers were not confused by Jesus's imagery in this at all. They know exactly what he's saying. Jesus is saying, I'm the tear in the veil. I'm the thin space where heaven and earth touch. I'm the temple. I'm the holy ground. I'm Eden. And they kill him for this. John, the gospel writer, says in in his prologue of the gospel that Jesus, when he came, it was the word of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us, but the word he uses is not dwell, it's tabernacle. God became flesh and tabernacled in our presence, or as Eugene Peterson put it, and I love this, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood, and we saw his glory with our own eyes, one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. The night before Jesus' crucifixion, though, he says something incredible. He understands that even though he is the embodiment of that presence that you were made for, he knows that it will always be limited by proximity to his body because he is the embodied presence of God. All the fullness of God dwells in him. So he says the night before his crucifixion, I'm going to go away, and it's better if I do, because if I go away, then the Holy Spirit will come. And my Father and I will come and make our home in you. And so he says, I'm going away so that you can have the presence with you everywhere and not just when you're sitting across the table from me. And three days later, we find him in that same room with those same disciples still in shock from the sudden turn of events. They're now sitting again with the crucified Jesus who has been risen from the dead. And he says to them, peace to you. And then it says he breathed on them. He literally, in the Greek, he spirited them. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And now we come to this morning's text. Now that we've introduced it, let's really dig into it. I'm kidding. It's almost over, I promise. I know we're sitting in a pizza oven right now. Um, I want to say two things in closing before we have, some, uh, before we have uh, Chris come up here. First is this. The Holy Spirit being poured in your heart is the presence that your heart was made to experience and it is the answer to the longing that each one of us has and nothing short of it will satisfy, nothing. No matter how hard we try, no matter how many places we go, we constantly try to drown it in a million smaller substitutes, but there is nothing short of the actual presence of God in the Holy Spirit in you that will satisfy that deep old ache. It's what you were made for. Anything else is settling. But second, the Holy Spirit does not come simply to satisfy longings within us. The Holy Spirit comes for the sake of our neighbors. The first thing we see in Acts chapter 2 is the Spirit falls and descends on us, and immediately they go out from the house, and they begin to share the presence with others. The New Testament says that because the Holy Spirit has come now and has been poured out in our hearts, do you know what that makes you? A temple. That makes you a thin space. Now you're the tear in the veil. Now you are the space where heaven and earth touch. Now your life is the kind of life through which the scent of Eden can seep out to the world around you where the light can push through a crack in the wall and others around you can experience the presence that they were made for too. In other words, God comes to heal and rescue you for the sake of others, for the sake of your neighbors, for the sake of your family and friends. The whole trajectory of God is to come and heal yourself so that he can say to you, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And this, friends, is why we're called Emmanuel, because we believe that this is our mission, and there is no greater or higher mission than to be the presence of God on the earth, on our streets, to be the scent of Eden in our context, to be people who carry in us that hope and longing of all the nations. And Jesus, we need you to do a deep work in us so that we can be people who are filled enough with your presence that we have presence to give. And Lord, so many of us are so tired and ragged and burnt out after a hard year. And and honestly, Lord, feeling sorry for ourselves and selfish, (laughs) Lord, it's hard to imagine our lives as existing for the sake of others and being energized by that right now. And that's where we need you. You are, the scriptures say, the love of God poured out into our heart. And we know that if you pour yourself out into our heart, we will have a never-ending reservoir of love to give. So come, Holy Spirit. Come like the wind and blow through this space. Fill us. Land on us like fire, God. On this church, Lord, on our mission, on that we would be a light, for Oakhurst, for Decatur, East Atlanta, and for the world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hello, friends. This is Matthew, the lead pastor at Emmanuel Anglican Church in East Atlanta. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We are disciples of Jesus who are seeking his kingdom and the flourishing of our neighbors. And if you want to find out more about Emmanuel and what's going on, just hop over to our website. The address is Emmanuel, that's with an I, emmanuelatl.org. Thanks so much. God bless you. Grace and peace.